This is Professor Allen, and welcome to the Quarter Bin. In every episode of this podcast, I will summarize, criticize, discuss, and review some issues from my comic book collection, which many episodes I will select kind of at random. Any books from my comic book collection are eligible, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents each for them. Were the issues worth 25 cents? Were they a bargain at 25 cents? Or were they still overpriced? Stay tuned and find out. For this 69th episode of the Quarterbin Podcast, we're looking at Doom 2099, number 5, number 6, and number 7 for Marvel Comics cover dated May, June, and July 1993. But first, a little feedback. In last episode, I covered an issue of Showcase 94, mostly featuring my main man, Man, my, my main man bat, my main man, man bat. Yeah, that's it. Chris and Cindy Franklin wrote in on that episode. Okay, okay, it was just Chris. Hi, Professor. I'm right there with you on man bat. I owe my love for Kirk Langstrom's tortured alter ego to the power record story, Robin Meets Man Bat. So my placement of him in the Bat Pantheon is also somewhat askew. And I also heartily endorse your praise of Chuck Dixon. For this reader, the Bat books have never been the same since Dixon was basically forced off of them in the early 2000s. Detective, Robin, Nightwing, Birds of Prey, they were some of the best comics out there when they were under his pen. Chris then gives some of the crazy backstory for Starfire at this point. Around issue 100 at Dick and Corey's wedding, a nearly naked raven covered in electric tape and possessed by the Trigon-tainted souls of Azareth, crashes the wedding and impregnates Cory with some kind of crazy demon seed? Come on, Chris. You've got to be making this up, right? It's as bad as it sounds, he says. That this decent story and showcase came out of that mess is a miracle worth at least a quarter. Great show as always, Chris. Thanks, Chris. I appreciate that info. Good stuff. Crazy stuff. But good stuff. Chris, of course, along with Cindy, host Supermates, available on the brand new Fire & Water Podcast Network. And along with Rob Kelly, he hosts a show dedicated to Power Records. Great listener Greg Arujo is on the same track as Chris. A few thoughts. One, Manbat, a C-lister? A character who appeared on one of my favorite Power Record stories will never be considered a C-lister in my book. Evidently, what Batman from the 30s to the 70s, and I'll add, Superman from the 30s to the 70s, were to me, Power Records were to a lot of people as well. Back to Greg's email, too. I'm glad someone else remembers Evangeline. I really ought to track down those back issues in the discount bins. Now, that is one of my favorite series of all time, and I have seen some of the issues available on the cheap. Because of the nature of that title, which is basically futuristic warrior assassin nun in space, it's on the short list of comics for Emily and I to cover on Dorkness to Light. And for Greg, number three, Chuck Dixon. You could definitely count on solid storytelling whenever you saw his name in the credits. He definitely left his stamp on the Bat titles in the mid-90s. And then one day... 
he just stops working on them. I wonder if he ran out of stories, or if he fell out of favor with the bat office, as writers such as Rucka, Grayson, Brubaker, and others entered the game. Well, if you believe what Chris Franklin wrote, it seems like maybe he was forced off the books. Shame, 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 shame. Zeb Oswalt had similar comments on Dixon. Cool podcast as always, Professor. Chuck Dixon is an awesome writer. I liked his run on Batman and Birds of Prey. You know, I am glad to see that this is such a common viewpoint, that Chuck Dixon is, in fact, one of the great Batman writers. Zeb said that he first read Man Bat when he got married, and then you find out that she's a woman bat. I also like Starfire especially now that Palmiati, Gray, and Connor are fixing the new 52 version in the current title. He adds that these early showcase titles were awesome. I used to pick them up here and there in the 90s. Huntress had a few good stories in there, as did The Eradicator. I think I even remember that Cobra had his own issue in an issue of Showcase. Can't wait to hear the next episode. Thank you, Zeb. Always appreciate your comments. Clinton Robeson also wrote in. He actually wrote it twice. Before he listened, he commented he was excited to hear me talk about Black Condor. I warned him that that may not have been my favorite part of the issue. He answered with, He's definitely an acquired taste, to be sure. Don't worry. If you say mean and hurtful things, I won't hold it against you. And then, after listening to the episode, he wrote in, Prof... So glad to hear you review an issue of 90s Era Showcase. These are some of my favorites during the 90s. You are partially right on your backdoor pilot assumption, but the title was also used as a what else is happening in the DCU for characters who either didn't have their own titles or or ones that were part of a team. The Black Condor story seems like it was trying to renew interest in the character. He had been a member of the Dan Jurgens Justice League America, for a little bit in 1993, serving as a Hawkman analog. Thanks for pointing out how similar their costumes are, by the way. (laughs) Yeah, Clinton, I think there's something about the bird motif that just lends itself to, you know, barely wearing any clothes above the waist. Clinton goes on to say he's told that Black Condor reappeared in Primal Force, starting around issue 7 or 8 in 1995, but as Primal Force only lasted until issue 14... I'd say it wasn't exactly a triumphant return for our friend, the Condor. Once again, you've done an amazing job with the podcast. Thank you, Clinton. I hope you find yourself willing to give more issues of the 90 Eras Showcase book a try, if you happen to come across them again. Thanks, Clinton. I'm glad that you did not take my lack of enthusiasm for the Black Condor story personally. Clinton, by the way, runs the Coffee and Comics blog, and is a consistent supporter of the network on Facebook. Really appreciate that. Ruth and Darren commented that they smiled all the way through the episode. So much fun. Thanks, guys. Very kind of you to say. Iowa's Joe Crawford said it was a great issue, a great episode. Man Bat, Black Canary, and Starfire? I really enjoyed your review. The anthology format seems to work really well for the quarter bin. It was nice to hear your take on three different stories in one episode. I will admit, though, I was concerned that after hearing your comments on Starfire's big, round eyes, that maybe Shag is starting to influence your style. 
I sure hope not, Joe, but that influence is possible, I suppose. I mean, Black Condor is hot, right? But more importantly, I do agree with you on anthology books being really good for this format. I've covered a few here and definitely want to pick up some more and certainly cover some more. It is fun. It really makes for, I I think, a fast-paced episode. And speaking of fun, speaking of fast-paced, it's time to move on to our issues for this episode. So everybody, get your passport out, because we're heading to Latveria. Oh, and the future. Doom, 2099, number 5, number 6, and number 7, each had cover prices of $1.25, meaning I acquired these books at an 80% markdown. All of the stories are written by John Francis Moore, with art by Pat Broderick and John Nyberg. All the covers are also by Broderick and Nyberg. The cover of issue 5 shows our armored hero in the yellowy chrome clutches of a fire-breathing being. Across the top of the cover we read, Introducing Fever. It is very 90s tabulous. The story titled This Man Condemned, starts in cyberspace. Remember that in 1993, cyberspace was a big deal, a mysterious nether realm of zeros and ones, where anything could be envisioned and portrayed. We see a red being coalesce in cyberspace, declaring himself the abomination in Doom's electronic heart. I am fever. And I am coming for you, Doom. Flying above Latveria in a cool hovering transport thing are Doom and Fortune. They bemoan the current state of Latveria, the pollution of the ground, the rivers, the air. His remembrance of the clean Latveria of his youth causes Fortune to ask if his memories have returned. He tells her no, but he has realized that his return has given him a purpose. I cannot live in the past. I have a future to construct which includes rebuilding Castle Doom as a symbol, a tangible symbol of the nation's newfound strength and resolve. But first, they meet with representatives of the Guild of the Independent Elite. These are mercenaries to whom Tiger Wilde had given asylum, including Chill, Scratch, and Fade. Because the year 2099 does technically count as the 90s, I suppose. Doom offers the Independence Haven in Latveria on the condition that if at a future date he requires their services, they will be paid very well, but his needs will take priority over all other commitments they may have. They try to haggle with Doom, but eventually accept his terms. As Fortune and Doom fly from that meeting, Doom suddenly freezes in midair. They plummet to Earth, but just in time, his armor unlocks, and they narrowly escape. Fortune asks what happened, and Doom responds ominously, I do not know. At the Zafiro gypsy camp that evening, Fortune chats with Andre, a member of the tribe, about her joint responsibilities to Doom and the tribe. Poet interrupts them and asks Fortune why she's avoiding him. She answers with a backhand across his face. We learn that Fortune and her brother Kaz were caught stealing food before Wild seized power from the crumbling alliance. Back then, Poet had a clean-shaven, martial artist sort of look, and he saved the pair from a roaming gang. 
But then, sometime later, her brother, whom Poet swore to protect, met with a tragic end. In Madrid, Pixel CEO Eduardo de Vargas studies what little he can find of Doom's history. Fever, an entity within his computer who is also somehow an employee of his, interrupts his future Googling. Fever announces that he has learned that Doom's armor is run by modified Pixel circuitry, which de Vargas had suspected. He tells Fever to get back to work and destroy Doom. Doom's armor diagnostic reveals no errors, so he turns his attention to the construction of the castle. At the site, Wire balances on a girder while Xander watches. He loses his balance and she saves him. An onlooking Doom asks Fortune how Xandra came to join the tribe. Fortune explains that she was found in a bombed-out building in Antikva when she was six. Wire is able to coax out the terrified child, and they've been inseparable since. A couple identified as her parents were found dead months later. Nearby, Chill, one of those independent elites from before, decides to investigate that story. Meanwhile, in the cyber world, Fever again takes control of the armor, and Doom destroys a portion of the reconstructed castle before being released. Doom clangs to the ground, and he knows beyond doubt that someone is toying with him. Wire. We have work to do. Later, Wire surfs inside Doom's armor, looking for anything out of the ordinary. He finds a virus and attempts to cure it with a dose of his own disinfectant cure program. To no avail. Wire returns to the real world and reports his findings, explaining that the virus is adaptable, almost conscious. Let me rework my disinfectant and go back in on a search-and-destroy mission. But Doom wants to join Wire in cyberspace, inside his own armor. He shuts down a system so nothing can happen to the suit while he is in the cyberspace world. Wire explains the alternate reality that they're surfing, and yes, Wire's avatar does actually have a surfboard to ride on. But it's Marvel, so there is some precedent for that. They crack Doom's armor system looking for the virus, but the virus and Fever find them first. Fever says he intends to drive them mad before killing them, and sends them through a wormhole somewhere in the armor system? Which has a wormhole? Like, in space? Anyway... Wire explains to Doom that they just have to ride it out. And when they hit the end, Wire activates a simulation program that looks familiar to Doom and kind of retro to Wire. And we turn to the last page to see Doom and Wire facing down cyber versions of the Fantastic Four. The end. Now, since we have three issues to cover this episode, I'm going to discuss this one right here. First, yes, the cyberspace portrayals are very dated. Of all the technology mumbo-jumbo we've ran into so far in this title, and from what I can remember the series, this is the worst of it. But this type of portrayal of the inside of computer networks, of cyberspace, the internet, whatever you want to call it, they were all like this. This one doesn't stand out as being any goofier or any nuttier than all of the other similar efforts uh, from this era. Although the three independents, Chill, Scratch, and Fade, there's really no excuse for those characters, or at least for their 90s tabulous names. And I don't know what to make of Fever, both as a cyberspace icon or avatar, 
but also as an employee of DeVargas? Is he a real person or just an AI construct? But then, who's on the payroll? Does Fever have a social security number? Does he pay taxes? Does the HR department know about this arrangement? I'm a business professor. I'm sorry. These are the things I think about. But I did like the plot point that's being pushed at here, that Doom's armor is subject to being invaded. It is software, after all. It is technology. Therefore, it is vulnerable. That is the way of things. We know from technology today that no matter how good a technology is, no matter how smart a software engineer is, no system is impenetrable. There's a nice sense of reality to that, actually. And I liked the backstory we got on a lot of Doom's team here. We, we need to be Doom-focused for the first arc. We needed his first victory, toppling Tiger Wild and reclaiming Latveria. But it was time to develop the, the support team, the side characters, Poet and Fortune, Xander Wire. Interesting relationships, interesting backstory. And I like the machinations within the Gypsy tribe. I like seeing that. Exploring that as its own unique uh, political, sociological leadership structure. I enjoy exploring that and exploring the, the personalities and roles of the people in the tribe. Now, I said at the end that they face down the FF, but the FF that shows up at the end of this issue is not right. Remember, this is a program. These are virtual reality constructs. There's something very wonky about them and all of their looks, mostly in the thing, because he's green, because he's actually the Hulk. And I like this, both as world-building and as sort of commentary. Because we know that the current day of the 1990s are considered in 2099 to be the heroic age, and that there aren't any heroes currently operating in 2099. They're a distant memory. And as often happens with memories, they fade a bit with age, and some things we take for granted, we take as undisputable historical facts, may actually not be. So the conflation... 60, 70, 80, 90 years later of the Hulk and the Thing, that does not explain how these characters may have been forgotten over the decades, but it does demonstrate that fact. And again, I actually thought that was a subtle touch. And there, there may be some commentary there too about the, the nature of these characters, about the disposability of comic book entertainment, the nature of you know, the, the pulp history of the medium. Or maybe I'm reading way too much into that. Sometimes I do that. Well, let's take a break here so you can catch your breath after that heart-stopping, pulse-pounding cliffhanger of an ending. We'll be right back with recaps of issues 6 and 7. Some good old-fashioned, futuristic Doom versus the FF action. In 1939, Timely Comics published its first issues. It later changed its name, first to Atlas Comics and then to Marvel Comics. In 2014, Marvel polled its fans asking for the 75 greatest Marvel stories from those 75 years and published that list in print form. The unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels countdown will walk through all 75 of these stories every Wednesday from December 31, 2014 to June 1, 2016. Join me, Blaine Dowler, and a cadre of other hosts, including established podcasting greats and emerging talents, as we run through the list, discuss each story in the context of its original release, and determine just what makes it so great. 
The unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown can be found at Bureau42.com, on iTunes, and on Stitcher. And we're back. We're going to cover issues 6 and 7 together, run the synopses together, and discuss them together. But let me describe the two covers separately. The cover of issue 6 shows Doom's face full on with the VR glasses that he has for the, the, the cyber world participation. And in the reflection of those glasses, we see him being charged by the FF. It's bold, it's colorful. The cover of issue 7 shows Doom from the center of the chest up in the background. His hand is out menacingly. I mean, awesomely. And in the foreground is a female being full body, arms up, positioned as if she is floating a bit off the ground. She appears to be made of light, maybe a being of virtual reality. And across the bottom of the cover we read, Her name is Paloma. The story in issue 6 is titled Tripping the Light Fantastic, and the story in 7 is a region of ether and size. So again, this is 6 and 7 sort of run together. We start in Latveria, Fortune and Xandra watching over the inert figures of Wire and Doom. If I had to net glide like Wire, Xandra says, I'd go insane. But Fortune reassures her that Wire is special, that his mind can process the maelstrom of data. And Doom will master cyberspace out of necessity. Inside cyberspace, Doom and Wire are facing down a very strange version of the FF. I mentioned before that the thing is actually the Hulk, but here his face is actually more J. Jonah Jameson. And yes, Sue is blonde, but she has Medusa's hair. Reed has a ponytail, and the Human Torch has some Ghost Rider characteristics. Whether this was all Broderick or, or John Francis Moore who gave him some guidance, I don't know, but it's pretty clever. It's, it's, it's pretty funny. According to Wire, it's a game simulation, and since Doom knows these characters, they should be able to move around without much static. They put up a good fight, but Doom wonders how all knowledge of the late 20th century became lost, using virtual versions of the Ultimate Nullifier and the Time Portal they dispatch the FF. And then, as they make their escape, another voice calls out. Step away from the console, the metallic image in a green cloak says. I am Dr. Doom. He is also more than a little bit off. He's sort of smiling, for one thing, which is eerie and kind of funny. That's supposed to be you? Wire asks. You should talk to a lawyer. But before we get too meta... They're able to cancel the program and move on. In the real world, Fortune is attacked by a shadowy figure named Hayes. And Poet and Xandra talk about his history with Fortune, expanding on the story we heard last issue. I'd been kicked out of the seminary, he says, and was traveling with a doctored passport and non-existent credit. He stayed with Zaviro almost two years, and he and Fortune's brother Kaz took off on an ill-considered trip to China despite Fortune's prophecy of disaster. Kaz never made it there. In Madrid, de Vargas and his employee, Fever, discuss payment, Fever reminding his employer 
that he can just as easily bring down to Vargas as he can Doom. Back in cyberspace, Wire and Doom hear hoofbeats and run across a member of the royal court of net gliders, legends of great skill that have cracked the uncrackable. Their names are spoken reverently among the gliders. And among them, riding a digital horse, the glider's net errant, Duke Stratosphere. Wire is beyond excited. This is Duke Stratosphere, the Duke Stratosphere. He's one of the Avalon Five. They stopped the domino crash that almost destroyed sea space back in 97. The Duke promises a shortcut through the program to where they want to be, but he leads them to fever. Doom refers to the Duke as her lackey and promises the man on horseback that they will meet again. Fever attacks, and Wire sends his updated virus disinfectant into, into Fever, hurting the program, but not destroying it altogether. But Wire is down for the count in the cyber world, and in the real world, his vital signs are dangerously close to flatlining. And that is the issue break, but we push ahead. Poet and Xandra desperately try to stabilize the real-world version of Wire. Something's blocking the neurotech interface. They're not as knowledgeable about this stuff as Wire is, but they need some outside stimulation to restart the neural transmitter. So Xandra does what she can, and lays a few big old smoochies right on Wire's lips. She admits to Poet that she and Wire are soul-connected. She'd trade places with him if she could. In cyberspace, Wire slowly comes to, but against Fever, he and Doom seem to have no chance of survival. Fever dumps their avatars in the trash, where their programs and architectures will derez and decay, leaving their physical bodies to rot as well. Meanwhile, Fortune awakens in Devargus's presence. Remember that Devargus is a total germaphobe? So Fortune is covered in a weird, gooey substance that allows her to breathe, but keeps her from germing up the area. Devargus tells her that Doom's reign is coming to an end, and just as she shifted loyalties from Tiger Wild to Doom, he would love to have her on Team Devargus once he completes his conquest of Latveria. But she turns him down. Devargus then asks Fever, if Doom is in fact destroyed yet in the program, slash programmer, slash employee, whatever, refers to Doom's body as nearly lifeless, which as we know from Princess Bride, means still a little bit alive. We return to cyberspace, from here to the end of the issue as a matter of fact, and prepare for things to get weirder. Doom and Wire are sluggish, but have to find their ways back to their bodies. Along the way, they find remnants of antique programs, such as floating chess pieces and a vicious cyberspace cat. Yes, I said a vicious cyberspace cat. But after these distractions, Doom struggles to keep himself from pixelating. Wire manages to activate an old directional program, and he creates the beautiful light lady from the cover, Paloma. She is able to reassemble Doom bite by bite which is a power that astounds Wire. But she needs his help to finish the job, and Wire combines his power with hers to assist the efforts. 
And then Doom takes all of that power, the combined power of these two net gliders, into himself. Wire worries that all of the data pouring into Doom will drive him insane. But Doom sees it a bit differently. Nothing in cyberspace can stop me now. I am everywhere and everything. I have total access. The End Over the last decade or so, I've done the Doom 2099 reread a couple of times, and these are the issues I kind of... I don't look forward to as much because they spend a long time in cyberspace, and we're not out yet. And I'm sure at the time when I was reading this live, these issues were the coolest things ever. And I still kind of like the Fantastic Voyage concept here, being inside Doom's armor, battling enemies. Conceptually, that's a solid, long-standing sci-fi concept. Nothing wrong with that. But the specifics... The actual concepts and the representations are certainly dated. And even worse than just being dated, they're dated to the 90s. I did appreciate the sense of whimsy that was here in issue 6 with the game space versions of the FF and then Duke Stratosphere and all that. Then the chess pieces, the cat. When I could laugh with the story, I really enjoyed it. For example, when Doom calls Duke Stratosphere a lackey of Paloma. And there was another funny moment in issue six when they were fighting the digital FF, especially when the goofy sort of smiley Dr. Doom showed up. Our Doom, Doom 2099, was not a fan of his digital representation. Uh, Doom and Wired actually defeated the FF team by maneuvering them onto a time platform. Doom comments that if they were following his original adventures, the digital FF should have ended up on a pirate ship in the 1500s. Wired eventually asks him about that comment, and Doom deadpans, it was a very long time ago. And, And there are trademark symbols after Doctor Doom, Ultimate Nullifier, and Time Portal within this this game architecture. And that was pretty funny. That's a subtlety I don't remember noticing before, but it's a commentary on, you know, commercializing intellectual property. And I, I again I I don't know if that's Moore or Broderick who came up with the idea of adding the small TM symbol, but whoever it was had a sense of humor, and I really liked it. Now, Doom 2099 is not a light, humorous series, but there are moments of levity here that help keep the book more, I think, timeless. If it had just been the cyber adventures, it would have been rough, because that's two-plus issues, where most of the action does take place in this VR or, or cyberspace setup. And there are moments that will seem a little on the silly side to my 2016 eyes, and, and when it's not silly, it's stretched out. They spend a long time in terms of, of comic book issues in this particular setting. Which is not to say that Broderick did not do a good job portraying the cyberspace landscape. I commented on the 90s-ish nature of the story, but the art always stays on the tasteful line. And along with the humor, Broderick's steady hand in the art uh, keep the issues still pretty good despite the dated concepts. They never fall into the extreme stereotype that's kind of embarrassing when looking back on the 90s. Except 
for Fever being a digital employee. I'm still stuck on that. Unless he's just an equivalent of Wire and NetGlider. But I thought at first that Fever was a program and not an avatar. But reading through it this time more carefully to podcast about, I'm not so sure. You may have sensed my confusion on that point. And like I said before, there is continual movement on the subplots and on the supporting cast. Not as much as last issue, because most of the action is in the cyber world. But one key point, Fortune has been kidnapped by DeVargas. And I don't remember anything specific here of what's coming up. But I can't imagine Doom will be thrilled by that turn of events. I mentioned in prior episodes covering this title, episodes 49 and 59, the inclusion of quotes at the end of each issue. In these three, the quotes moved away from Shakespeare to other noted literary figures. Issue 5 concludes with Santayana's famous quote, Those who cannot remember the past are doomed to repeat it. Issue 6 gives us a Lovecraft quote about the terrifying things that science can bring to us. And 7 is a quote from Edgar Allan Poe. All good selections, and I continue to like these quotes and just appreciate their presence. A good literary quote is like classical music. Its very presence lifts any creative work a few levels. So I'm a fan. The Verdict on Doom 2099, Issues 5, 6, and 7. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. There were some iffy moments in these issues. The cyberspace stuff is some of the wonkier stuff we faced in this title so far. But the overall plot is still great, and Doom is Doomtastic. And so there's really no doubt these three books are all legit quarter-bin deals. The prior times that I've covered this title, I've mentioned the old 2099 Bitmapped podcast, hosted by David Ellis and Amy Morgan. That show, unfortunately, only ran 11 episodes. But in that last episode, episode 11, they covered issue 5. Now, that's as far as they got, but if you want another perspective on one of the issues we covered here in this episode, check out that episode of that podcast. That wraps up my coverage of Doom 2099, issues 5, 6, and 7, bringing episode 69 of the Quarterbin podcast to a close. In episode 70, we're jumping ahead 20 years or so to a pretty modern book, Watson and Holmes, number one, from New Paradigm Studios, cover dated July 2013. And if all goes well, I won't be alone for that episode. If you have any comments about these issues, the episode, or the podcast in general, feel free to contact me. Until next episode, I'm Professor Allen, and I'll see you in the quarter bin. The quarter bin podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Show notes and links are available at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com where the podcasts Uncovering the Bronze Age and Shortbox Showcase also make their home. Links to Facebook and Twitter are there as well. Feedback for the show is welcome at relativelygeeky at gmail.com 
And if you like what we've got going here, please leave a review and a rating in iTunes. It'll help more people discover the show. Thanks again for listening. Professor! Professor.